0: Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. In this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, I'm joined again by Anirban, who comes from Seven Investing, which you may have heard of before. Seven Investing provides global stock research every month, Seven Ideas. Uh, I'm joined by Anirban, and we're talking about uh, a few different topics this week. We're talking firstly about inflation and interest rates, the latest from the RBA, and what that means to both investors and homeowners like myself who have chosen to lock in our fixed rate here at home we also talk about three different companies right at the end of the show that should be on your watch list for different reasons. And in the middle, we talk about the big acquisition news from this month or from the past month, I should say. Those those announcements include Sydney Airports and Altium's uh, decision to reject a takeover offer. So these are some really interesting topics that we're talking about today. If you like ASX news and insights and global insights, this is the episode for you. As always, thanks for listening to the Australian Investors Podcast. Anirban, thanks for taking some time to chat with me about investing again, mate. I love these catch-ups.
1: I love it, Owen. And uh, again, thank you for uh, getting me on uh, to come and talk with you mm. and to Australian investors.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we had um we had a good reception to the last conversation that we had with zero preparation. We managed to talk for about forty five minutes, um, which is which is. Great. It goes to show that maybe, uh, maybe we just like talking markets a little bit too much. Um, this week, we have a, quite a few things to talk about. There's been a lot happening here in Australia. You're going to talk to us a little bit about so a global company. And I'm going to talk maybe about a couple ASX. I've actually got a follow-up on one company that we both know um, that actually fell 20% yesterday. That would be Wednesday um, the 7th of July. But maybe to start things off, I know um, a couple of our listeners actually went ahead and joined 7investing between last week and us recording today and um, read a, a message on Twitter to the effect of, I didn't realize it was global research. So I was thinking maybe what, what, to kick this episode off, maybe we can just explain a bit about what 7investing is and what you've been doing. Cool.
1: Uh, thanks for the question, uh, Owen. So 7investing, uh, as you said, is basically um, you know, recommending 7 stocks, each month, and we, you know, from seven different advisors, and our advisors basically at Seven Investing, they cover a range of topics. So, they might be things like you know biotech, you know, medical devices, you know, genetic, you know, gene, gene therapy to you know, gene engineering to you know, innovative businesses that you know are at the you know sort of at the cusp of doing new things that you know potentially can multi bag you know many times to even steady blue chip quality companies maybe under the radar blue chip companies that is a whole range of sort of risk reward um, as I, as I you know you can think of it as you know a little bit of you know, some people are looking for 10 baggers. Some people are just looking to, you know, maybe do 15% per annum, you know, which would handily beat the market. Some people are looking for even lower risk, you know, uh, lower return, but still market beating return. But, you know, they might be looking at retail companies. So it's a whole gamut. It's a, it's a, the way I think of it is it's like a buffet of seven different ideas for investors essentially of different types, right? So, you know, those with the lower risk tolerance to those with higher risk tolerance. And as 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 you rightly pointed out, it looks at U.S. listed companies. They need mm-hmm. not necessarily be U.S. based companies. They just have to be U.S. listed. So, for example, Atlassian, which is mm, right. an Australian company uh, but is he- you know headquartered here in, in in Sydney, is a fair game for a recommendation in in Seven Investing because it's listed over in the U.S. All right. So, the, so 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 basically, we look at global companies. Uh, but those that are listed in the U.S. And, yeah, and, and again, we're long-term buy-to-hold investors. So, you know, much like you um, and those people who know me, you know, we basically invest for the long-term. Um, we, you know, we're not scared by volatility and we're looking to beat the market, again, over sort of the long-term. And when I, when I say long-term, it sort of varies from, you know, but usually three to five years is the minimum sort of time frame that we are looking at um, when investing. Hmm. and And then, what we do is we we do uh, of course we do um, provide recommendations at seven investing, but we also provide what you know what I really love is the stock pitches so we, we every recommendation that actually comes through is a stock pitch before that, and hmm. uh, it's pitched to the entire team that he asks questions we actually record that we have slides and and that really is a nice way of seeing how an advisor is thinking about a company. What's the thesis? What's the rationale behind it? And I think it's a little bit of teaching people how to fish? You know, how do you catch the tuna? How do mm-hmm. you catch the you know the shark? You know, how do you catch the whale? If you want to catch the whale, you know, catching the whale probably would be a bad idea, but <laughs> in, 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 I'm not trying to get in trouble with the environment folks here. Yeah. I, I love whales. Uh, we wouldn't go and catch whales. <laughs> we but. <all> do.
0: <laughs> but
1: we want to we want to have whales in terms of investing whales if we can. So it's um, it's, it's easier. Yeah. So a little bit of fishing we also have um you know company updates that we may provide for companies that we have recommended we have advisor updates which basically looks at what in each advisor is thinking we also have so th- those are all on the you know sort of behind a paywall we have a lot of free articles as well so there's um podcasts that are free so we have regular mm-hmm. interviews with people that we do um that's freely available. we have podcasts with our own team that's freely available not behind a paywalls so anybody can go to seveninvesting.com and just click on articles and see um uh, every month we write at least one piece of article that is public facing so the last month or in july um, uh, in I was in June, I think. Uh, so we are in July. In June, mm-hmm. we wrote about how each one of us thinks about ten baggers. And I thought, you know, that was interesting perspective to get, you know, from each individual about how they think about ten baggers. And that, that's publicly available, you know. um So, for example, I had an article saying, you know, what are the six things that I look for if I'm trying to hunt for ten baggers, and, mm-hmm. and I could could see there's some commonality between how, say, I think and how Simon um, or Matt thinks or Steve thinks. And we can compare and contrast that. So, yeah, that's what we do in a a nutshell. Global investing, um, a lot of uh, innovative, you know, sort of, a lot of our recommendations are sort of what I call bleeding edge style so you know bleeding edge is mm. even ahead of sort of leading edge uh, these are companies that are sort of at the forefront of things that are changing how things are done uh, a lot of those companies then again a lot of you know um, companies that you have heard of you know the the companies in your wallet for example that sort of companies like you know MasterCard uh, people don't think of them as investment opportunities but they are and, you know, and they have been steady market beaters so there's a lot of these heavy-duty blue chip companies that one can also think of and that can be nice beautiful core of one's portfolio as an example
0: Mm. and just so just to round it out there's if you're listening to this and i know a few of our listeners have joined seven investing since you you came on the show you can there's a there's a link you can follow in the description that leads you to seven investing so go check that out um what i really like about seven investing because we obviously have the membership site focused on asx companies right Uh, and, and etfs and uh what i've we're actually redoing our membership site, and having seen what you guys are doing at seven investing has actually been really refreshing because it's just so simple the the when you log in um, I just love that it's really easy to find what every advisor has recommended and the full report that you can even get in a PDF if you prefer PDFs um, and i I feel like it's just easy like it's it's focused on high conviction research so just a full disclosure I think We don't get any. I don't get anything for recommending Seven Investing. It's just us coming together talking about it because it's important to set the scene for people. But yeah, like if um, these full reports are are pretty impressive, and the Seven Investing podcast is actually one of the highest rated. I didn't know that. Um, It's actually really, really highly regarded. So, uh, and you're doing interviews on there as well. So if you if you want to find out more um, about that, just head to the link in the show notes and um, find out more about what Anabon's doing. So. Basically, uh, today we're going to talk about maybe something that just to tie back into last week, which is um, we talked about inflation and the impact on interest rates. Will they, won't they? That's kind of, I feel like we're going to say that a lot this year. Um, (laughs) Lowe's come out and said, um, you know, in the July meeting, but also then in a subsequent uh, journalist uh, interview panel, he kind of did a roundtable. Um, he basically reaffirmed his stance that the RBA won't raise rates until 2024. But the, I guess the interesting thing is that a lot of the headlines you turn on Sunrise in the morning, for example, and you'll see that many of the banks are increasing their interest rates, um, on or at least upping their interest rates for longer-term fixed, fixed rates, which obviously has an impact on not only personal finances but also banks, um, banks as as companies and as, as investments. And it's a big thing, right? Um, We've, we ha- we've seen a massive slowdown in in wages growth since since COVID um, and even in the lead up to COVID, that impact on wages growth. But we had, I think it's fair to say, mate, that we had very strong wages growth for quite a long time in Australia, at least 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, I guess the thing is that people are really worried about this. We talked about this at length last week. Basically, it's going to have to come down to where inflation ends up over the next, say, one to two years. That's my opinion. And- uh, what Lowe said is effectively wages growth has to get back above 3% for them (laughs) to be serious about moving the needle. Um, They've wound back, the thing that probably caught people off guard in the last week in July, the first week of July, sorry, uh, what's caught people off guard is the bond buying program has been wound back ever so slightly. And I guess just how does this actually lead to anything that's worth noting for investors is, I guess, you know, we talk a lot about the, the investing component when we, when we come on the show. But the other thing that people tend to underestimate is that a lot of people have mortgages. Mm-hmm. And it's a really easy thing to do to make sure you're getting the right rate. Um, last year when we bought our house out here in Upway, which is in the eastern suburbs, we're just chatting about houses off, off air. Um, we went 80% fixed um, and we got about 2.2%, which when, in the scheme of things is so low. to think thing that you mm-hmm. can get rates... That low, um, so we did eighty percent fixed, which then gives us twenty percent to have our offset account attached to a variable loan. I've heard of some um, rates two or three years forward getting locked in below two percent, which mm-hmm. is really impressive. Um, just some just some numbers here that I'll throw out: um, the international, uh, the bank for international Sediments... Uh, And there was some data that showed last year, end of last year, 2020, that is Australian households spent 13.6% of their income on home loans. I thought it was a lot higher than that, Um, but it's actually down from 17.6% in 2008. And only one third of households in Australia have home loans. Um, So I thought that was really interesting because, I mean, we hear so much and we talk to people that still say their home loan is such a big part of their life, and it is. Um, I guess that caught me off guard. Would you have thought it was that low?
1: Yeah. So I was, you know, I was looking, I didn't get a chance to, so I'm not really sure. We might have to check back maybe next week. <laughs> I didn't get yeah. to do research. It's, we might have to check back what the, what the ABS data actually says for this, right? Um, hmm. I thought, I personally also thought the same thing as what you thought, that I thought that our home ownership, actually I thought in Australia, is much higher than, for example, say compared to the US. That was my impression, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, my mm. impression was that it's not 30%, but it's somewhere in the in the 60% zone. Mm. Um, so I don't know what how they're calculating this. Because again, a lot of these things depend on calculations, right? How things yep. are being calculated and things like that. Um,
0: but what well, this actually said to me is that it's actually, if only one third of households have home loans, it actually said, reminds me that you know, this is this old kind of, I guess the debate comes back to inequality and, and all that type of stuff. But um, it actually says to me that maybe the economy is actually in a lot better shape than it is previously. And we talked last week about um, inflation and wage inflation in terms of and, and, and the impact that technology is having, you know, this globalization and, the you know, the disruption that technology is having making our lives more efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting from this, just one little anecdote was that, um I think this comes from CBA. Um, so 20% of mortgages um, were fixed rate um, mm-hmm. at the start of COVID and now they're around about 30%. Mm-hmm. And CBA's data for 2021 suggests that it's as high as 50% of new loans coming through, both of investors and home- owner-occupiers, are fixed rates. So people are genuinely concerned about rising rates now. Um, I guess even if, it's, even if the RBA is not moving, it seems like a lot of homeowners are.
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm in the same same bucket as you. Like, you know, I I believe that if you can fix at two percent or something thereabouts, then I would, you know, I fixed a large chunk of our loan, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I would actually repeat that <laughs> if I, somebody gave me a five-year option, I would actually do that because, you know, I'm, AM, I'm almost certain I can generate more than two percent mm-hmm. return yeah. myself. Um, and, you know, and if I can generate, let's say 10, then, you know, it just makes, it's it's, it's, a, it's a common sense to just, you know, fix this at two and invest the rest of the funds. Um, so For I think sure. that makes a lot of sense. And the, the only thing that I can think of that, You know, so the RBA might, for example, say that we wouldn't increase rates. That has an impact, right? So, like, I mean, the lending is a function of the RBA rate. So, the the money that I guess RBA is printing and making available to banks, then which in turn is also how much savings people have, which is sitting in savings. So basically, the deposits act as essentially money that can become loan. And then, of course, that doesn't suffice. So you need to borrow the remainder, maybe another 30% or so, or 40% of the funds come from overseas, right? So I think there's there also a tie-in with global rates. If the global rates go up, of course, that that, that then has an impact on currency, right? So the global mm-hmm. rate goes up and our cu- rates don't go up, then it has an impact on currency Maybe it neutralizes to to some extent. But I think if global rates go up, then banks would start passing on that cost, right? Yeah. So... I think here people are being, you know, Australians are being smart and saying, well, if I have the opportunity to lock it in at this low rate, and I think the rates are, you know, well, it's kind of all common sense at this point, right? I mean, rates can't, we hope they're good, not, not going to be negative, right? Then they can't really go any any further below than this, or even if they go below this, there's going to be, you know, probably one 1.75% 1. or maybe 1.8% versus 2%, which is minuscule, but, you know, it yeah. can actually go up on the other side quite a bit so um i think there's all those you know but i think yeah personally i feel comfortable actually um locking in a rate at this point because even if the bank rbs says it's not going to increase rates i think there's a there's a potential and there's a, you know there's a good probability that rates are actually going up which is what you know you you've suggested the banks are already Increasing the rates on some of the loan products that they've got right uh, mm. which which makes which makes sense so yeah yeah, and, uh, yeah. yeah. go ahead, Owen
0: oh, I was just going to say, yeah, and that's the um I guess that's the thing like it's like an asymmetric bet here um you've you know your downside is probably. How low can it go? Maybe one point seven five percent. Just common sense approach here, rule of thumb. Uh-huh. But how high can it go? Well, it could go back to say three percent or or higher, which would have a detrimental impact. The, the interesting study is that we we see we see a lot more, and this is not just in Australia. This is in the U.S. as well. We're seeing a lot of savings. People are squirreling money away, um, and whether that's just taking advantage of low interest rates, putting in an offset accounts, um, whatever the case may be, they're just putting money away and um, I think if you do that in conjunction with locking in a rate, I think the regret minimization framework would suggest that it makes sense to consider locking in part of it.
1: Absolutely. I mean, what's interesting, what I find really interesting also is that you know different um, countries have different sort of setups, right? So one of, the, one of the, you know, so for example, people in Australia wouldn't think about you know taking their keys. And just handing it over to the bank and walking away that doesn't have that happens that has happened in America, right? Do you think that doesn't really can't really happen here so in foreclosure of that form uh foreclosure it's closed by the actually the homeowner, not by the <laughs> bank right but there's another difference that I think people don't think about, which is which is interesting i think in in the u s you can actually get a thirty year loan yeah. At a fixed yep. rate, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, uh, which has a very interesting impact. What, what it does is when the interest rates go down, people are refinancing. You can always refinance your loan to a lower rate, right? Because the interest rate has gone down. So, you had a 5% loan and the interest rate went down. You could now get a 3% loan. Even if the interest rates go up, it only affects at that point the new cohort, mm-hmm. Right? Whereas in Australia, if the interest rates go up, not only impacts the new cohort, it actually impacts the existing cohort because of the mm. percentage of variable loans and because we don't have 30-year term loans, right? You know, maybe we can get a five-year loan, fixed loan, but that's probably, you know, that's pushing the boundary. I've not seen anything mm. like, you know, I've typically seen most of them at two to three-year loans, right? Yeah, fixed typical. Fixed term loans, but, you know, five years maybe is pushing the boundary. So I think there's there's differences to think about in different economies sort of, you know and therefore different levels of savings would make sense right because in if if you knew that your mortgage is only going to be four percent of whatever amount you owe right then that's different from not knowing whether it's going to be four percent or six percent because those two percent can actually make a difference so
0: mm. Mm. yeah i'm just thinking of the implications of having a 30-year locked locked in loan where it's if the the lower it goes if you're going to just refinance and lock it in again you'd be crazy not to I, I think you know that that's that's the one thing i mean in australia that like you said we can use the low interest rates to save more if you lock it in and then prepare for that kind of rate shock that might come in 3 to 5 years um, if it comes you know we talked last week about maybe this is something that's a bit trans, more transient um so any in any case it's it's an interesting thing and i think it's an important one we don't talk about a lot as investors we don't really talk about that personal advice piece um, as much as probably we should. So interesting. Um, In terms of um, actually doing it, what you can do is just call your bank and and ask what your rate is and ask what your discount to the standard variable rate is. Um, Knowing your actual discount to the standard variable rate, you can actually take that with you throughout the bank um, and you can ensure that you're getting a good deal um, over the life of your loan, which is really interesting. Um, And you can get an offset account. I think a lot of people lock in you know, it's pretty common to lock in part of your loan, um, which then gives you the flexibility to have an offset account attached to the variable component. But um, that's how you do it. And it's a really good move. Uh, It's something that I've, well, we've done um, in the last year. And I think it's just a no brainer. So I'm actually onto companies now, which is where we like to talk um, and spend most of our time. Sorry, mate, were you going to say something?
1: I was going to say that my hot tip would be that always ask your bank, can you give me a lower rate? (laughs) (laughs) You you know, I'm surprised. Basically, asking sometimes gives you 0.15% less than what they're giving you currently. So um, it's surprising how that works. And you can say, well, you know, I've been a loyal customer, yada, 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 and they usually would oblige. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah fin- financial institutions have a wonderful habit of always rewarding the new customers uh, yes. not the loyal customers, so you pay for convenience and loyalty um, yeah. with any financial institution so make sure you 're following that up good good suggestion mate um, okay so this week in investing um, and it 's not just this week it 's probably this past few months um, we 've seen a lot of acquisition interest so um, most recently, it's been Sydney Airport, which you're about to get into. Before that, the company that we both know reasonably well is a company called Altium, um, which also received an offer and then subsequently rejected it. Um, why don't we go, why don't we take it one at a time? Let's start with Sydney Airport. I've been, a, I've been on leave this week, so I'm kind of catching up. So you're going to have to guide me through this one, mate. What's happened? Who's interested? Um, why are they interested? And what do you think?
1: Yeah, so it so the Sydney Airport one is it's basically a consortium. So it's a consortium of I think a super fund, uh, some PE, a bunch of people, basically with a lot of money, mm-hmm. <laughs> are, are saying, well, we can take this thing private. And uh, the typical type of investor. So so Sydney Airport, if you think of Sydney Airport, is like a toll booth operation, right? Um, mm-hmm. When things are normal, so it's a tollbooth operation because you know it basically makes money off you know planes. Taking off and landings, you know, some fees associated with that. Um, the planes parked, it makes some money of that. It makes some money of retail. So it's basically a function of the, you know, the, the traffic volume going through the airport, which in normal times is pretty. You know, we know how much that is, and we know how much typically that grows. It's it's a classic steady income. Um, you know, it, it's you know the way you can think of this is it's basically a a a, a, a a, you know, a bag of debt <laughs> attached mm-hmm. with a runway <laughs> that pays <laughs> that, that has steady income coming in and that can therefore pay some distribution uh, over time so it's, it's and, and this is not just true for Sydney Airport, for any well-run airport around the globe, they tend to be, especially international airports with high interest, they tend yeah. to be um, great investments for steady income, you know, and some growth as well yep. so given that the airport is effectively shut because of COVID and, and the border closures. Uh, this is an opportune time for someone looking to, well, you know, I can buy this at a bit of a discount and then I can lock in. So, I've you know, I've locked in a bit of a discount and then I can, of course, over time get the free, you know, the cash flow that this business is going to generate, which is perfect for, you know, um, you know, say super funds, right? Or a pension fund that wants to generate a certain income over time. In a steady income over time on a, on a certain investment dollars, right? So return on invested capital, for example. So it doesn't surprise me that it has come in right now. And, um, you know, they could take the company, take it private. If you take it private, you now no longer are subservient in many ways to the market participants, right? Because once you're a public company, you have to satisfy a bunch of stakeholders, right? So you've got to satisfy your institutional investors. You've got to satisfy your retail investors. You know, you've got to satisfy the proxy advisors, right? There's a lot of, you know, and then you have to report every half and then you have to do continuous disclosures and whatnot, right? So there's a lot of overhead. There's a lot of um, responding to different actors and their demands. When you take something private, you exactly know what you want and you basically get management to deliver that, Mm -hmm. right? You're only responsible to that one actor which really can work well for an asset like this which is a pretty steady stable asset so, you know you can cut flab you know cut some fat you know streamline it and you know basically just run it and mm. and so it, it seems you know uh the timing seems um <laughs> just right in many ways okay. and in perfect timing and 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 yeah and i think um you know, I, I was, I'm interested to see, uh, given that, you know, existing investors haven't seen really returns from the stock price as catered, this is like, you know, basically pushing them close to sort of the, you know, pre-COVID stock price point, somewhere about that point. It's not a premium to that, uh, mm. you know, whether or not investors, existing investors vote uh, or the you know, the board basically says it's opportunistic, but, you know, what what's the pressure from the other investors involved in the current set of investors is going to be interesting to see. So... Mm. I expect, you know, and you talked about Altium, and I think that's a completely different um, case. But I think a lot of these things make sense, and uh, I would only expect these things to continue happening, maybe at a mm. more frantic pace. Because you know, I think there's, you know, whenever there's turmoil in or in in the global scene or locally and globally, I think there's opportunities. There are opportunistic folks out there, investors who are looking to capitalize on it.
0: Well, we just talked about using um, debt to buy an asset, infrastructure. The infrastructure being our homes. Um, <laughs> this is a very similar thing in so far as why wouldn't you take advantage of low cost of capital to buy an asset that has predictable outcomes? And I'm just looking here. This is an article that Lachlan Bird Jensen wrote on our brass media site. He said, based on Monday's takeover proposal of eight dollars twenty-five. It value shares are 21 times FY19 distributions. Distributions being the important thing to to, um, to uh-huh. focus on because of the depreciation that goes on in these big infrastructure businesses. A 21 times pre-COVID distributions. I feel like, well, that's, that doesn't, it's, in some senses that seems good value, but in some senses it doesn't. If we invert that, it's probably just under a 4% uh, distribution yield. Uh, maybe if their cost of capital is well below that, and they can kind of keep growing the business, um, they can probably stretch that out a bit. Um, What's interesting, and and by the way you were speaking there, I actually looked at Australian Super because you can actually look at um, some of their infrastructure assets and some of their private equity if you just go to their website. And they own a big stake in Brisbane Airport and uh, Manchester Airport's and Melbourne Airport so and Perth Airport, they've got a heap in here of these infrastructure assets. Um, and it's very common for these large pension funds to want this type of exposure, right? The unlisted, kind mm-hmm. of value it as you like, put it in a, the balance strategy, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, don't, don't necessarily need to report it to everyone all the time. Um, it makes a lot of sense for the um, would-be acquirers um, who are in a similar situation. Um, so yeah, right. So it looks like at eight dollars twenty-five. I'm just going to pull up the share price. It looks like you know, obviously it popped on that. It's sitting at eight uh, seven dollars eighty-six. Um, so which is pretty pretty high considering the share price recently. Like it was as low as um, nearly six dollars pre-COVID. It was up near nine dollars. I don't know. I feel like maybe there's the potential for a better deal to come because it's our only publicly listed airport.
1: Yeah, like, but I mean at the same time, you you just made the case, right? That's four percent basically cash flow yield, if you think about it, right? So mm-hmm. I mean, if you pay more, the yield goes down. Yeah. Right. And then you'd have to you'd expect you'd have to expect that the cash generated by the you know, distributions being generated by this thing is actually going to grow mm-hmm. substantially over time to actually make it meaningful, right? Um I mean the other bet might be that you know you own this thing now you take the cash now and then you at, at better times you basically put it back into the market and you make yeah. a killing killing on it maybe you know but but as it, but, but you know but a lot of pension funds long term you know they are looking for places where they can invest where they can get steady return mm-hmm. and where they i think they think that the asset can be sold to another investor quite easily Right. Like, I mean, an Mm -hmm. airport asset like Sydney Airport could be relisted, right? I mean, it could be sold back into the market. So that's, you know, there's some process to it and there's some timing and there's some cost to it, but it's for these. Uh, like large investors it is another type of semi liquid cash which is generating interest which currently is not generating interest for them right uh, mm. if they have you know 25 billion dollars sitting somewhere uh, it's just burning a hole that 25 billion dollars in the meantime can now make what well, 22 billion dollars or whatever it is you know 4% interest and then later on you can make another maybe 20% on it if you sell it back into market at let's say ten dollars, right? Yep, <laughs> um yep. 100%, so hundred percent
0: negatively gearing a property.
1: It's like it's like negatively gearing a property to some extent. And and the thing and the thing is that you know to you and I it might appear oh well you know do you really want four percent but you know like you and I might be targeting 15%. <laughs> so so yeah. us 4% looks like okay it's it's meager. But to them, 4%, they're probably not even targeting, Like you know, they're probably targeting 6% returns a year. So 4% plus a bit more gives, gets you there. It's very safe in that sense, right? So, I, I, you know, a lot of pension funds love these sort of yeah, things. The, the, mm. There's a group of airports out in Mexico. This is just a tangent, mm.
0: um,
1: you know. Which have been fantastic investments <laughs> for exactly <laughs> the same reason. And I don't know what the share prices are doing now. Actually, this reminds me. I'm going to probably go and check after the show <laughs> what the share price is doing for those Mexican airports because I am pretty sure they have been also been hit. Um, you know, and they they could potentially be great investments <laughs> if, the, if the share prices is, is hit. You know, you could just buy it for arbitrage re- reasons. And you can think that well, in a couple of years' time, when it goes back to pre-COVID level, um, if the share price is already not. there, there, you would think that the share price would go there, and they're pretty durable assets so mm. yeah I think yeah, interesting it's in, play from
0: very interesting play and um also you know I, the the private equity angle um and the kind of that that typically when they're baking in IRRs for their 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 valuation multiples um what they will be looking at is can we break apart some of this business can we Can we take this out? Can we put that in? Um, Probably doing things with more flexibility than, as you said earlier, on a private company has the ability to do. So that's a really interesting one. Speaking of using, thinking of synergies and that type of thing, the other company which you and I know probably more so than Sydney Airport is um, Altium. So Mm -hmm. the software developer for printed circuit boards. Um, Maybe I'll throw it over to you again, mate. So what are we? What are we talking about here? What ha- what happened? And then maybe we'll just riff from there.
1: Yeah. So, like, I'll change one of the leaders in printed circuit boards. So, printed circuit boards are basically these, uh, you know, green-looking things that are inside most electronic mm. things. Which basically is a bunch of circuitry put together. So, even if you have a smart toaster, which might actually have a circuit board inside it, your car has a circuit board. Your computer has a circuit board. And, um, yeah, so it's most electronics run on circuit boards, and you need a a PCB software to basically build it. And Mm -hmm. uh, Altium makes one of them that's used by, you know, global companies worldwide. Mm. Now, for Altium, I think the interesting thing is that its growth has slowed down. It it never was like, you know, a 50% grower, right? It was always a slow grower. Crazy high margin, right? And, And that's one of the things about software companies is... If you have written the software, you can keep selling it again and again and again to other people, and you can make yearly revenue off your existing folks. So you've got essentially an upfront investment and some maintenance investment. And if you don't have uh, requirements for strong growth, your sales and marketing expense is very low. That means your operating income is actually on a, as on a margin basis is going to be pretty high which mm. you know had you know uh, altium has like 40 50% close to 50% maybe operating margin just off the top of my head but somewhere in that mm. ballpark so a pretty strong business you know with a strong uh, balance sheet now what happens though is if you want to keep growing then you have to make sales and marketing expense expend, ex- expenditure and mm. you have to Try to hit into new markets, or you have to try to convert folks who are, say, using pirated software to real, you know, to pay for the software, right? And that is a go-to-market strategy that becomes harder and harder as as you have bulked up and you've basically, you know, I guess picked up the easy fruit. So in that state, though, a smaller software company becomes a a great candidate, especially if you have good software to be merged to a bigger company because they've already got the Salesforce, right? So Mm -hmm. um, Autodesk, for example, which made the bid, basically is a leader in CAD CAM. So this is computer-aided design software, right? But they're not just a computer-aided design. Computer-aided design is used for everything, right? From designing aircraft engines to designing cars to designing, you know, buildings, Lots of different things, but they just don't do that. They have over time acquired software for, you know, uh, graphics in in computer, you know, computer graphics and things like that, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, um, augmented reality software, and so this could be a nice addition. They also have a PCB software which competes with the Altium. So for them, a lot of companies that, for example, take uh, automobile companies which would use CAD CAM software, right? they also need a piece of e-software. So you could basically just add on and bundle things and sell. So it's like, you know, basically you have existing customers, you can cross sell to them. You can use your large sales force to cross sell to other people and, you know, basically expand your market's reach. So I think for a company like Autodesk, it makes sense to have this type of add-on, which you can then, you know, you don't have to build the software, but you can sell it. And I think you can accelerate growth. And of course, you can take out some of the flab, you know, fat associated with being a smaller public company. So that's the strategy for them. Of course, Altium, um, uh, of course, rejected the deal, saying the deal was not, you know, didn't fully value them. Although, you know, on the, on the surface, I mean, it looks like they're paying a pretty high multiple. So mm. um, what is surprising is the share price hasn't actually <laughs> fallen back. Usually one would think that, you know, the, when the offer dissipates, the share price should fall back. Back, uh, to previous levels because now there's no other offer, right? The share, you know, the share price took, got a bomb because of the offer. But maybe, you know, market participants think that there could be a competing offer because, you know, there's Autodesk and then there have a couple of other big players, but you know, there haven't been any competing offers that I know of. So or I've heard of and there's nothing been announced yet. So, but again, interesting. I think that's, um, but the other thing, only other thing I'll say is that the, the, once you get to the size of Altium, right, Four or five billion dollar market cap company, there are not that many companies out there who can acquire you, Mm -hmm. right? Because you know, like other than say big tech, like you'd have to fork out. So, five billion dollars, you Australian would be about like say four, you know, three and a half, four billion uh, American. Not met. Many companies actually have that kind of cash, <laughs> so you'd mm-hmm. either have to raise debt, uh, um, you know, or sell equity to you know. So companies at, at times worry about doing those type of rounds. It's a pretty big deal to make that kind of acquisition for a few hundred million dollars of revenue, right? So you know, you have to be really confident that you can turn that few hundred million dollars of revenue over time into at least a billion dollars of revenue uh, in, say, in 10 years' time to make it worthwhile. So I think that's the story there. Um, But yeah, Autodesk has been a steady performer in the the market and has done a good job with acquisitions. So
0: yeah, it's done, I think this is the biggest acquisition um, for Autodesk, but it has done quite a few over the last, say, five years to kind of, as you say, to, it's actually used that strategy really well. And in, in addition to getting that organic growth, um, which is that natural tailwind, I guess, from more design across the board in terms of, you know, the this, this SaaS style model of design software. Um, what So we actually recommended LTM um, we we're a bit late to the party, but we recommended it about. I'm just going to get my number here. Twenty seven dollars. The offer was at thirty eight dollars, but um, we the actually the, the deal actually started. It's funny that you mentioned that a company that's small like LTM that has really good software. You you know you and I see this all the time. Whereas a great bunch of people get together, create software. Um, this has obviously been a long time in the making, but a great bunch of people get together, create a product that maybe a larger company couldn't make because of bureaucracy or you know just incumbency uh, and then the big company says, well, we've got the marketing, we've got the firepower, we'll take you in um, and we'll sell it and they do a good job of it. Um, it's interesting that you say that because the actual, according to Altium anyway, the, the offer came about as a result of them working on projects together and then it became this It kind of morphed the conversation more from let's work together on a problem to, okay, how can we actually just take over your business? So, to your point about the number of buyers out there, I kind of only identified three buyers potentially of Altium Software, which was Mentor Graphics, which is now owned by Siemens, Autodesk, and Cadence. Cadence seems to be growing pretty well on its own. There are some businesses out of Japan, but they typically focus on, in my experience, like I think it's Zouken, they typically focus on the automotive segment alone rather than, say, the more diversified Stack of CAD design, um, which is Autodesk. So those are the really the three only strategic buyers. I thought maybe there's someone else that comes into it because I, I this is where it's different. I guess to say Sydney Airports insofar as the, it's not necessarily like a, a play for valuation. It's a play for like strategy, strategic acquisition. And because we we modeled three different scenarios, we basically had you know the standard bull bear and base case from here. Um, Myself and our analyst Catherine worked on this, and you know we were t- trying in our bull case. We we're effectively taking what management have been saying for years as their forecasts, um, which have been slightly, you know, they say they they pride themselves on acquisition, but in my opinion, at least, yes. But no, you know, you take it with a, a pinch of salt. And so, if even if we just apply a reasonably low discount rate of 9%, um, we had a bear valuation of $27 base valuation, which is probably our gut, uh, you know, our gut feel, 32 and a half. Um, bull case was $46. Now, if we take... Now, just to re- refresh your academic theory here, if you take the expected returns, um, basically, you have three scenarios. Um, you know what the return profile would be at those different valuations. What's the probability of those occurring? Even if you take, um, you say it's a 15% chance it hits our, our bull case, 35% for another offer, slightly higher at $40, falls back to $32, we say give that a 35% probability, falls to the pre-takeover price um, of $27, we'll give that a 15% probability. All up, you multiply them together, sum them up, sum product if you're using Excel, and you get to a negative expected return of 4.4%. All that's to say, if I lost you there with numbers on a podcast, <laughs> that basically the offer, in our opinion, was very fair. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually, I think actually $38 was a very fair valuation, um, and it reflected the tr- strategic nature of Autodesk's position rather than, say, a valuation. Play in itself, so it's interesting that Altium has stayed so high since the offer. Um, I found that to be, I find that to be quite interesting, to be honest.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. Actually, uh, you know, um, th- that completely makes sense. Actually, one player. I was just searching this up. You know, we do research on the fly sometimes, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Speaking, we know, I was yeah. Listening to you and and, uh, and as, so the the other uh, player that can be is, is is a potential player, and this is another company that actually um, Altium has collaborated with is Dassault
0: right? So of course. Yes. Desalt is the
1: fourth sort of, so it's not, it's not, um, there are multiple players, but I think, you know, as you said, I think Autodesk made a fair, actually, uh, in my opinion, Autodesk was paying a pretty high premium, right? You know, 30 times sales roughly or something like that for a company growing at 10%, you have to be really confident that it can deliver with, you know, less than $200 million odd revenue. You have to be really confident that you can actually grow that substantially over time. And Mm. um, you know, to, so I I was not really sure why you would you would knock back that kind of offer, mm-hmm. right? And to your point, the other point that you were making—I mean, that's true—that um, you know, it feels a little bit like okay, you know, you develop this software and then somebody takes it away, but that's the thing, right? I mean, it is really hard. Like these are step changes, right? It's it's one thing to first, you know, when I say like if you look at small software company getting to $100 million of revenue is a big deal, right? Mm. And then from there to a billion dollars of revenue is another big deal. And from billion to like, you know, those factor of 10 multiples are really hard. And there mm. aren't many software companies. Actually, I think there are none on the ASX that have a $10 billion revenue, right? Mm. Because it is mm. imp- really, really, the number of companies that actually get to that range is very few. And the number of companies which have a billion dollars of revenue is also very, very few, right? So, um, so I think, Emergence acquisitions make sense in that sense because you can you know you can use existing firepower, sales and marketing R and D, um, to you know you basically are getting more done with less. Um, so I think there was some rationale from their point of view, but yeah. very interesting. We'll see what happens, right? We'll see if there's a counter offer.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll see. Um, yeah. Uh, Desault, Deso—I don't know how to pronounce it. Some one of our French listeners can probably pronounce this for us. Desault,
1: um, I think is the correct pronunciation, right? Or yep. that's so, I think.
0: <laughs> yeah, we'll go with that. Um, they <laughs> have because I remember because the the collaboration was in SolidWorks, which that's is right. the software. That's the really impressive software that I used at uni when I was studying engineering. Um, yeah, so if you if you if you think of SolidWorks, if you've studied engineering or any type of computer design. That's the type of space that LTM op, uh, operates in. Okay, so we're we're are two minutes in, mate. Uh, we probably we've got some some companies to watch. Why don't we um, Why don't we fly through these? So three companies to put on your watch list. Last week I mentioned a company called CleanSpace, Space, which does um, basically positive airway for masks and and in environments like healthcare and industrial space. And I mentioned that the reason we couldn't recommend the company inside our beyond our Rast Rockets Beyond program was simply because. If we think about investing in researchers drawing a mosaic or piecing together a mosaic or drawing something, you know, they connect the dots. We just simply didn't know where the next dot was going to be when we we're trying to draw this picture. And basically the company has since come out and said, um, second half revenue they expect to report ten point two million dollars. So that would mean full year revenue is fifty million, say. Um, if you think about that sl- sequential step off a cliff, really, it's gone from nearly $40 million in the first half to $10 million in the entire second half. Um, they, they talked about, you know, some weaknesses, obviously, with COVID, oversupply. But what was really interesting, um, which kind of caught me off guard and caught our analyst team off guard, was that how little um, was being contributed from the industrial component of the business. So, they sell direct to hospitals by their own selling, um, which is great margin. They make a lot of money from that. But the industrial side of the business, which is like mining, um, manufacturing, et cetera, um, that's sold through distributors. And that actually slowed down dramatically too, which you would expect because you'd expect a spillover of mask oversupply. You know, that spills over into another adjacency. If you've got an N95 mask sitting in your warehouse or you've got 10 million of them, you're not just going to sell them to the hospital because that's what you're used to. You offer them to the mine as well. Um, and so basically, the industrial side of the business has slowed down. Um, below what we thought was a baseline. So that obviously impacts our valuation. The company's got lots of cash, good margins. Um, It's now valued at, and this is again on the fly, according to Google Finance, which isn't always correct, 130 mil market cap. company fell 25% yesterday before coming back to down 7%, I believe. Um, at, At 130 mil market cap, it's got about 40 mil of cash. It's enterprise value around 100 mil. If it can get back to something decent in terms of revenue run rate, those margins should start to kick in um, and it might actually be profitable for, you know, in that 12 to 24 month period. We'll wait and see. It's one for the watch list. Interesting company called Clean Space on the ASX under the ticket code CSX. Anubon, over to you. Have you you've got one for us.
1: I've got one. yeah, I'll make it quick. So I've got a company from the New York Stock Exchange called Paycom Software. The mm-hmm. code is P-A-Y-C. And the easiest way I can describe this for uh, investors who are maybe familiar with ASX companies is if you've heard of a company called Elmo in Australia, uh, which makes human resource software, you know, software for recruitment, software for training, software, where, you know, leave, roster management and things like that, combined with uh, paying that you know so basically payroll that's what paycom does um, similar sort of market strategy but focused on so they're focused on the small to sort of the medium scale enterprises basically looking at companies at about five thousand between 2,000 to five thousand employees in, in the okay. US and uh, yeah this has been uh, you know it's been a fantastic founder run company it has you know pretty high retention rate of 90 percent it has grown at a steady rate it's probably Got about 5% of the market, maybe, now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, has been a very good performer, a solid performer uh, in portfolios in the last, I think, five years. It's up probably eightfold. And, you mm-hmm. know, it's still a small company uh, from an American mm-hmm. uh, company size. It's $20 billion market cap. Uh, right now, about $20 billion market cap. I personally hold it. I think, you know, it can be a great investment for the long term, you know, but something mm-hmm. to, you know, again, really simple business. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, one that I think can do really well over the long term, you know, steady steady type of business.
0: Yeah, 23 billion market cap. That's um, a small to mid cap, maybe if you're investing in these hyper-growth technology companies. One question for you, uh, because mm-hmm. I, I came across it this week because I was looking at an Australian um, HR business. It wasn't Elmo, it was another company. Um, and I, I'm i familiar with um, ADP, mm-hmm. if um, automatic data processing, I believe is the full name. Um Yeah how is it different to how does it differ to that yeah so they're all similar space so
1: one of the things that this company does is it focuses exclusively on the small to mid-size sort of companies right, right. of course adp okay. serves similar companies as well um again just new gen software sometimes you know sometimes it's mm. basically taking things to the cloud offering new gen software of offering things that you know make it easy for your hr teams is sort of your you know way in. The other thing I think that we forget is um, many of these companies that you're targeting, many of the companies that you're targeting right now, probably have either archaic systems that they've built, For sure. either offerings from companies that do not no longer exist, are either in house, right, or are not in the cloud. So there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of opportunity just because stuff has changed and how you know people do business has. Have changed, right? right? So there's just there's just this change, and you can write the change. So that's sort of the, I think the best answer. I think many of these things have a lot of competitors. So yeah, for sure again, they do. Yeah. But 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 I think you know again ADP is of course the 800 pound gorilla in, in the space.
0: Yeah, and I, I I've come across Paycom before because I know a lot of other businesses integrate with Paycom because they realize that it's a really um, impressive piece of piece of HR software. Um, so, that's I find that's always a pretty good tell for a business. If developers are building into it, then they think, their clients or they think um, that th- this is an important sticky piece of software that goes to the core of businesses. I'll just throw one more idea out because I feel like yours is um, really impressive and mine was kind of a I have to talk about it because it fell 20% <laughs> since we last spoke about it. Um, I'll just throw one more in which is a, a company that I spoke about on AusBiz uh, last week um with luke winchester actually we're on the show together and we talked about a company called Laserbond. it's another small australian company it's had a pretty strong run up recently under the asx ticker code lbl does surface engineering so it basically repairs manufacturing uh, equipment or machinery um, uh, to a standard that's up to 10 times better than the original component it also does oem stuff so original employment um, original equipment manufacturing so basically Creating bespoke um, pieces of manufacturing equipment to go in machinery, um, often used in mines, but also in manufacturing centers and that type of stuff as well. Uh, what's really interesting about LaserBond's next step, um, the kind of the next evolution, or the evolution of LaserBond, generally speaking, is that basically it is taking what it does so well here in Australia and recognize that it can't do that necessarily the way it's done here in Australia overseas. So it's partnering with, with providers overseas to bring know-how to, to global partners. So a really interesting business. Um, it's called LaserBond, ASX LBL. You can go and find our conversation on AusBiz if you need to know more about that. This is always a bit of fun, mate. So we've managed to clock up another 50 minutes and talk about some really interesting companies. What's next on your radar for 7investing? Anything that you can share with us?
1: Um, Well, you know, the first of the month is always when our recommendations come out. (laughs) We are working hard towards our next set of recommendations that uh, are going to come out in the first of, uh, of next month. And yep. yeah, our, our current recommendations have come out. I'm, you know, uh, without saying much, I really like the one that I've got. Well, I like, you know, I have to like the one that I, I got <laughs> you because have to, that's, yep. you know, I've picked it. Uh, um, and I personally own on, on that stock. Again, it's a very interesting one because it's, it's sort of in the, the global e-commerce play. And, um, you know, it's a fast growing company, really like 100% growth. Um, and typically when you you know one of the things that happens is when you see 100% growth early stage company you don't see them to be profitable this one is actually profitable founder run yeah. you know so it, you know, it for me like it takes a lot of these boxes that that I look for and it's got some really strategic backers uh, which is again another very important thing right you know when the big uh, gorilla signs up to be a partner <laughs>
0: hmm. instead of
1: trying to directly compete with you that's always a sign uh, yes. that you know you've got something good going right doesn't mean that you're gonna definitely win but you know this is one for at least for anybody who's looking for sort of high higher risk higher growth you know sort of my that's my style and again individual styles vary but yeah, you know, when I saw that company first time, I said, oh, this is very interesting. I like it. So I've got to position myself. And one of the things that I try to do is I try to only recommend ideas that I think I either own, would love to buy now, or I'm going to own very soon after recommending. So um, yeah, so like, you know, I have plenty of skin in the game of stuff that I recommend. Um, Mm -hmm. All of my recommendations till date uh, at 7investing have been companies that I actually own and have added to and things like that. So yeah, cool. but exciting times. Right.
0: Nice, man. Okay, great. Again, you can find the link in the show notes to 7investing. You can also find the link in the show notes if you want to join us at Rask uh, and get some ASX research. Mate, always a pleasure. So until next week, thanks for chatting.
1: Thanks for chatting, Owen.